Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, meetings continue with Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs in British Columbia. This is a good step, and if, if it's anything, it's a, it's a victory for dialogue and, and, and peaceful resolution. Uh, these things uh, take a lot of work. Uh, they take a number of steps, and, and you can't have those without open dialogue. And, you know, I think I was looking at the cancelled meetings and not cancelled meetings throughout the night. I think that's just evidence, further evidence, that face-to-face -face meetings are, are much more important than, than dialogue through, uh, through public statements. Canadians learn the RCMP has been paying for the security for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, but that will stop in the coming weeks. They want to live in Canada, they're Canadian citizens. Canada is a great and safe country. Uh, I don't think it's the necessity of the RCMP unless there's a specific security threat. Uh, I wish them well in Canada. I would say they could come and live in Northern Ontario, but it's not really the role of the RCMP, I think, to continue uh, that kind of, uh, those kind of funds. And a Conservative MP introduces an abortion bill, despite a campaign promise from Andrew Scheer that the debate would not be reopened. It is true, Mr. Speaker, that the majority of Canadians agree with having access to abortion. It is also true that 84% of Canadians stand against sex selection abortion, and I look forward to debate in this House. It's Friday, February 28th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief and the host of the follow-up podcast, Althea Raj. Good morning, Althea. Good morning, Mark. So, Carolyn Bennett uh, arrived in British Columbia and meetings began with Wet'suwet'en hereditary leaders. Um, and there's a sense that these discussions will continue. The pause button has been pushed on pipeline development uh, and the construction around that. So, where do you see this going? Well, Mark Miller, the Minister of Indigenous Services, told reporters on Thursday that this was really a first step. Now, this might seem like bit of a surprise to Canadians who've been watching this crisis unfold for the last several weeks, but the fact that um, the chiefs who had basically been refusing to meet agreed to a meeting is seen as a very positive sign for the federal government. That being said, um, it's unclear that the asks of the hereditary chiefs have anything really to do with the federal government. The only thing the federal government can really put on the table is discussions over title, a discussion that actually uh, had already begun with the British Columbia government last year, last February. Um, they opened a table to talk about title, but any questions about, you know, stopping all the work on the coastal gas link pipeline, uh, you know, removing um, or rather rerouting that route, all of that is entirely in the purview of the provincial government. So where where do you see this going? Because uh, uh, obviously uh, there are a lot of people who want a resolution, but uh, there are so many disparate interests here. It's tough to imagine one that will leave everyone satisfied. Is there is there room for a compromise? That's a big question, and I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, it seems like they, the hereditary chiefs, took a pretty hard line approach. I mean, in the injunction document, it basically says the company tried to reach out to them some forty times. Um, and that's one of the reasons why their concerns were never really addressed, because they refused to participate in the process. Now they seem to be participating in a process. Um, what is meant by resolution, I guess, depends on whom you ask. I mean, the federal government is just basically concerned about moving goods from one end of the country to the other. And so far, um, 
as we're recording this, there's only one uh, barricade that is still exists, and that's in, in Quebec. Um, and there, of course, the premier has used some uh, incendiary language, I think, that has made people perhaps dig in their heels a little bit more than they would have otherwise. Um, in terms of, you know, the, the protest in Tayandanaga, the barricades there have come down. Uh, the trains are moving. So there is a sense in the federal government that um, the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs don't have as strong a bargaining position as they had last week, for example. So the Prime Minister is going to meet with First Ministers on March the 13th, provincial and territorial leaders in Ottawa, at a time when, since the last election, uh, there's been a lot of talk of national unity. They're going to talk about things like climate change, the economy, health care, infrastructure, equalization. Do you expect that's going to be uh, a particularly thorny meeting? And uh, if, if we're still dealing with blockades in two weeks, is that going to be part of what the Prime Minister will be uh, grappling with around the table? Yeah, I expect there will be quite a few fireworks, especially between Jason Kenney and Justin Trudeau. Um, so the the meetings will take place in the second week of March. On Thursday, March 12th, the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister um, and the First Ministers, I'm not sure how many of them will come, but they were supposed to meet with the Assembly of First Nations, uh, ITK, the Inuit Organization, and the Métis National Council. And um, to talk about how to move forward on Indigenous issues. And the next day, um, the First Ministers, all expected to be there, um, will be talking about, well, the federal government said, as you said, healthcare and infrastructure transfers, et cetera. Um, this will all be happening in the kind of the backdrop of the Supreme Court hearing the case on whether the Saskatchewan uh, uh, appeal um case about whether or not the federal government has the right to impose a carbon price on the provinces. And we know that Alberta Court of Appeal um, recently said, uh, well, has been the outlier in saying that, no, Ottawa does not have this right. So obviously that's going to be a topic of conversation. I'm sure tech and what the federal government is doing to encourage investment in the oil and gas sector and resource sector just generally will obviously be um, something that Mr. Kenny wants to put on the table. Um, so yeah, I think that there will be there will be a few um, tense moments. It may right. not go entirely according to the federal government's plans. All right, let's talk about the Conservative leadership race. The deadline has passed. It was last night at midnight. Is this now uh, shaping up to be a race, basically, between Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole? Despite all the other names that were floated over the course of several months, including Rana Ambrose, Pierre Poilievre, John Baird, and Josh others. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, is that is that what it's come down to ultimately? Well, it is a democratic process, and I hate to say that none of the other uh, half a dozen candidates uh, don't have a shot at winning this. So I'm actually not going to say that they don't have a shot. But for sure, the two front runners are Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole. And what's interesting is already um, we're seeing the candidates take uh, a, a harder right wing approach than I think most people expected um, when Andrew Scheer uh, decided to step down as permanent leader of the party. Uh, at the time, I think a lot was being talked about and written about how the Conservative Party was going to expand the Conservative tent. You know, uh, Justin Trudeau has made the Liberal Party a very center-left left party and has vacated a lot of room on the center-right. Um, but so far, we're seeing Aaron O'Toole uh, pull 
um, Mr. McKay more to the right and other candidates as well. And so it's very interesting. You know, the, there's about 180,000 Conservative Party members and the timelines are so tight that it is difficult to expand your tent to include potential new members. Uh, and now that they have a dialogue that is very much kind of the same words that we heard from Andrew Scheer back in 2017, um, it it will be interesting to see uh, how whoever wins ends up winning, whether it's a coalition candidate. You know, we saw Andrew Scheer win because he had the support of social conservatives who who managed to, you know, slightly put him over the edge over Maxime Bernier. Will that happen again? Who knows? Yeah, it'd be interesting to watch. We'll we'll see how that unfolds. So, uh, speaking of the conservatives, Andrew Scheer is being criticized, the uh, interim leader of the conservatives, until they choose a new leader. Because he committed to the idea that he would not allow any of his MPs to bring forward bills that would uh, limit access to abortions. And there is a bill that's moving forward uh, that, uh, that would do, uh, ban abortions on, uh, for uh, gender selection. Uh, and uh, so he's facing criticism, obviously, because it appears as though uh, he's broken that commitment. Yeah, I'm, uh, I struggled with the story because I'm not sure how much he really committed to that idea. In the election campaign, I think reporters pushed Mr. Shear so far that he kind of had to adjust his policy position on the fly with regards, with regards to um, the abortion issue. And he said that while a conservative government led by him would not introduce such pieces of legislation and basically suggested his cabinet would be whipped on the issue, he did note that, you know, he couldn't prevent any member of parliament from introducing any piece of legislation. And, you know, that is their parliamentary privilege. They are allowed to do, to do that. I mean, that's why members are there. Um, but he said he would strongly uh, discourage them, that he would speak with them, try to dissuade them. And uh, today we had Simon Jeffries, the uh, spokesman for Mr. Shear, say that as leader of the Conservatives, Mr. Shear has always discouraged members of his caucus from introducing items that will reopen this debate, suggesting that Mr. Shear did speak um, with this MP, but that she decided to defy uh, what he told her. That said, uh, Mr. Jeffries was unwilling to put that on the on the record, saying that Mr. Shear had actually spoken with this MP. So um, I don't know whether he did speak with her and she decided not not to obey him. Um, but uh, it is interesting to see that, of, of course, as predicted, this is an issue that um, is important to many Conservative members um, and possibly will be debated in the House of Commons. All right. And it appears as though we are not going to have to pay the security costs of Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Uh, but we have been paying some of their costs for the past few months, right? Mm-hmm. So Evan Dyer from the CBC um, broke this story on Thursday, um, basically revealing that the federal government has been paying Prince Harry and um, Meghan security costs since uh, October. Now, um, by law, the Canadian government does have to provide protection to um, protected persons, internationally recognized protected persons, and as Duke and Duchess, they were uh, obviously part of that category. And now that they've relinquished their titles, or they will, uh, as of the end of March, um, the Canadian government will no longer be footing that bill. But um, it's uh, 
I think, an example of how the federal government was less than forthcoming um, with the media and with the public when they were repeatedly asked um, if they were forking over the cost um, for Harry and Meghan being in Canada. Um, it took uh, several months for a straight answer to come out. And, yep, sure enough, we have been paying <laughs> probably yeah. millions of dollars. <laughs> we will wait for an access to information request to find out how much money actually we have, <laughs> we have been forking out. But, yep. Uh, so it's also interesting to note that they actually have been in Canada a lot longer than I think most people realized. I think uh, the media coverage suggested that we're here on vacation during their Christmas break, but they've been here since November. Right. All right, Althea, thank you so much for joining us today. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. You too. That's Althea Raj, HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief and the host of the follow-up podcast. The best thing we can do is to provide information as it comes available. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Toronto Star makes the case for preparing for the coronavirus. The Star writes, Top health officials have warned this virus was unlikely to be contained. This isn't cause for panic, it's cause to prepare. We can help limit any viral outbreak by protecting ourselves and others. And governments and health authorities need to start preparing people for the type of measures that might become necessary if the disease does start to spread. At globalnews.ca, Scott Thompson argues the voices of the Indigenous community who want to prosper from the coastal gas link pipeline are being ignored. Thompson writes, I would suggest the majority of the protesters across the country are only interested in the Wet'suwet'en who are against the pipeline, not the majority of the Indigenous community who are depending on it to get them out of poverty. That is not democracy. That is special interest hijacking issues within the Indigenous community to advance their own anti-pipeline agenda. In the National Post, Michael Coates and Dimitri Pantazopoulos consider why there are so few candidates for the Conservative leadership. They write... The field is practically vacant, and the reasons for this are fairly straightforward. Of all the potential candidates, Peter McKay's brand most directly fits the preference of voters, and his would-be rivals know it. When a candidate sizes up the competition, one who has the financial means, a broad geographic coalition, and high name recognition is hard to beat. No wonder so many prospective contenders took a pass. Now here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister will be in private meetings today, and Green Party Interim Leader Joanne Roberts will be the keynote speaker at the East Coast International Development Summit Evening Gala in Halifax. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, February 28th. Tune in to Primetime Politics Weekend on CPAC for coverage of all the week's events. Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend.